Hi, and welcome to the Genesis Podcast. I think it's so neat that you're able to join us through this medium, and it means so much to me personally to hear that this has been used to encourage so many of you. It has always been the posture of Genesis to tangibly extend the love of Jesus in various ways, both locally and across the world. We support programs that assist families in need, contribute to ongoing works and building projects in Mexico. We've built a latrine and cafeteria for St. Andre's School in Haiti, as well as are advancing a food program there that we hope will help feed the children for years to come. The money collected for all these endeavors could have paid for a facility of our own many times over, but instead, we've intentionally chosen to be a mobile community since we began. We now have before us an opportunity to invest in a building of our own. We're not doing this, however, without considering the works we're committed to or even the works we feel compelled to keep doing in the future. But we're asking, if you've benefited from this podcast or from anything that Genesis has done, would you consider partnering with us by donating to this work directly at www.thegenesisstory.com and click on the Building Fund tab. Joshua told the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do amazing things among you. Together, let's prepare for an amazing tomorrow. Thanks, and God bless. Okay, we are going to start First Peter. Since we're going to be here for a while still, um, I thought, well, let's pick a book and let's get through it. Since on Sundays we're kind of looking at John uh, talking about friends and Jesus' best friends and really going to be going through a lot of First John, I thought, well, let's pick Peter. He was another one, you know. And we're just going to cover the first few verses right now. But, you know, Peter's journey is an interesting one. At the culture and time he was living in, if you went to school, usually at about the age 12, if you weren't really good at learning, you ended up going back to your family's business, and that's what you did. It was only those who were really good in education that went on to get connected to a rabbi and learn further, because the education basically was that of their uh, ancestry. It was that of the Torah, of the Old Testament scriptures. And so if you don't continue in that rabbinic training, you just go back to your home, which is what Peter did. He was a fisherman. When Jesus found Peter, he was a fisherman, which meant he only went so far in his training. And he probably had no idea that he would end up being a disciple of the Messiah. Not just a rabbi, but the Messiah. It probably had never entered his mind that this would be my journey, that three and a half years would be spent following Jesus that would actually change the rest of his life in such a powerful and dramatic way that he would be so instrumental into what we have in the New Testament. Mark's gospel, Mark was actually a disciple of Peter. And so what we see in Mark's gospel are really the things that Peter relayed to him, as well as the writings that we have in Peter's epistles. And so Peter is one of these who were really close to Jesus. Throughout the gospel, we see the names Peter, James, and John mentioned. John sees himself as the one that Jesus loved, as his BFF, so to speak. But Peter was one of the closest. He was there at the Mount of Transfiguration. He was there in the garden. He was 
constantly going and doing things with Jesus. And we see the best and the worst of Peter. I think that's why we like him or I like him so much is he seems so human. He, he seems so much like me or you. You know, he had these great moments where he declared that Jesus was the Christ, the son of the living God. We, we see that he actually walked on water, which I just think is so cool, right? I mean, he, even though he fell in later, he, he started to do this. He had the guts enough to say, Lord, if that's you, call me out there. To think that he could actually do that, it's a pretty amazing thing. And so he had these great moments, but then he also had these other moments where he was rebuked by Jesus. He told Jesus, you'll never die. In fact, I won't let that happen to you. And Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You don't seek the things of God, you seek the things of men. And then we know he denied Jesus three times, right? And then had to be restored by Jesus three times. But he was close. We see that Jesus changed his name. His name was Simon, and he ended up calling him Peter, which means rock, which I just think is kind of cool. Hey, rock. You know, right? I mean, who wouldn't? That's the first rock, you know? I mean, he's just like, yeah, rock. Yeah, rock. Hey, would you take care of this for me? And just, he gave him this cool name because he was that close to him. He becomes one of the pillars in this movement that we call Christianity. He, he preaches the first quote, sermon at Pentecost, 3,000 people come to faith, and it's on that rock that Jesus begins to build his church. And, and Jesus' last words to Peter were, feed my sheep. And that's what we see taking place in this book is he's, he's trying to give this disclosure. He's trying to help those who are going to follow Jesus. And one of the themes that is taking place in this book is that idea of suffering, because at the time that this was being written, those who were followers of Jesus were undergoing some intense persecution. And so he is trying to help them and help us and all those after him understanding how we follow Jesus in times where we have to suffer. And he starts off in verse one, he says, to God's elect, Exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. He starts off and he says, to God's elect. And when he speaks of God, it's a very specific God that he is speaking about. In fact, he kind of tips his hat, so to speak, as he goes on and he talks about the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the obedience of Jesus Christ because it's this triune God that they believe in. It is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It is a God who has been involved in human history throughout the Jewish people's history and given them the scriptures and revealed himself through the law and through the prophets and revealed himself most clearly through Jesus himself. And a lot of times our attempts to kind of uh, explain the Trinity and the, the mystery of what the Trinity is, we always try and pick the individual parts, but really I think more can be understood if we looked at the relationship between them. 
because that's really where the power is. That's where the meaning is. An author, Richard Rohr, in his book, The Immortal Diamond, he says, God is more a verb than a noun. God is three relations, which of itself is mind-boggling for most of us. Yet it opens up an honest notion of God as mystery, who can never fully be understood with our rational, instrumental, mechanical minds. God is a process rather than a clear name or idea, a communion, interbeing itself, and never an isolated deity that can be captured by our mind. And I think that's important because if we start to think of God as just we've got him figured out and we know what the Father is or the Son and the Spirit and we've got this whole thing recognized, I think it becomes idolatry. You know, but understanding what is this mystery between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, it is a mystery and it is something that's hard to grasp, but it's something that is revealed in each of these relations as well as in these persons. Paul says that God's weakness is stronger than human strength in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. And I think that's an awesome key to the mystery, actually, of the Trinity. Because if you start to describe human strength you might describe it as self-sufficiency, as an autonomy. God's weakness would be described as being plural or in this interbeing. Human strength admires holding on. The mystery of the Trinity is about each one letting go into the other. Human strength admires personal independence. God's mystery is total mutual dependence. We like control. God loves vulnerability. We admire needing no one. The Trinity is a total intercommunion with all things and all being. We are practiced at hiding and protecting ourselves. God seems to be in some kind of total disclosure for the sake of the other. Our strength, we think, is in asserting and protecting our boundaries, but God is into dissolving those boundaries between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, yet finding them in that very outpouring. Take the rest of your life just to try and unpack who God is and recognize the reality of who he is is giving us insight into actually who we are to be. This triune God that we believe in totally lets go of boundaries for the sake of the other and receives them back from another. Each accepts that he is fully accepted by the other and then passes on that total acceptance. Thus, God is love. It's the same spiritual journey for all of us. It takes most of us our entire life to accept the fact that we are accepted and to be accepting of everyone else. And yet this is who God is in his nature. For God to be good, he has to be one. He has to have this substance and this foundation of who he is for God to be love, he has to have another. He has to be two because love always requires a relationship. For God to be joy, 
It requires three, much like a, a father and a mother need the child to bring the focus of their joy. For there to be joy, there has to be something that two can share. And, and so we see in God this relational aspect between who he is is really an important understanding of, of his character, of what love means, of what joy means. And it helps us to understand these things. What God did through Christ opened our hearts to the restoration by the Spirit. And so as Peter starts off to God's elect, it's really deep, that meaning of who he's talking about. And he's helping us to understand this, to recognize these things, and to give us a hope. Romans in 5, chapter 5, verse 5 says, And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Spirit and has been given to us. And so here is this nature of God that is interdependent, that is always sharing, that is always accepting, that is always receiving. And now we see that that's happened to us. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, has been given to us. The experience of knowing that you are loved by God, knowing that God is for you, not against you, even though you are not one of the religious elite, even though you are not perfect, even though you have failures, have faults, God is still for you. And it's important for us to recognize that. And the illustration that he starts to paint is real familiar to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces. Exiles. He he gives them this picture of being an exile. What picture do you think that brings to the people at this time who he's writing? When were they exiles? When they were in Egypt. Right, And they had to flee Egypt. They were slaves in Egypt. And so they left not having a place, searching for that land of promise where they could settle down. In Exodus 24, Moses took the blood and dashed it on the people and said, see the blood of the covenant that the Lord made with you in accordance with all these words. And so this idea of sprinkling blood, we see that in verse 3 to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. We see it again in verse seven. Said, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes, even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so here is that all that the Lord has spoken, he will do, he is going to accomplish And Peter writes this to those who are followers of Christ. It's not a one-time event, but it's those who are, in a sense, engaged to Christ, right? He says he's given those to those who are obedient to Christ, sprinkled with his blood. The whole idea is those who are committed to this life of Christ, And when you think of engagement, right, you think of like maybe an Instagram and you see someone with their ring, right? Oh, I'm engaged. And everyone, you know, and here this engagement, 
you know, it's sprinkled with blood. It's a little darker, you know, it's kind of that, but that's how they did it in that time. Hey, that's the engagement. It's the covenant. It's what's being brought to bear here. The point is really that we've said yes to this love. We have said yes to this relationship. We have been brought in to this covenant and they have an understanding that what this means and what he's talking about. In Hebrews 9, it says, For if the blood and go- of goats and bulls with the sprinkling of ashes of the heifer sanctifies those who have been defiled, so their flesh is purified, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. It is the sign of a commitment. It is the sign of being fully engaged. It is a sign of that establishment that I am in this all the way. Later on, Hebrews 10.4 says, it's impossible for blood and bulls and goats to take away sin. So then what's the blood for? It's the sign of the commitment. It's the sign of the covenant. It's the sign that is being established. And Christ is taking that picture that they knew and saying, I will take that covenant on myself. And that's what Peter is trying to establish throughout this. And verses 18 and 19 of chapter one, he says, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. And so he's giving them the picture of the covenant that we've been brought into. And there's throughout this book, this paradoxical uh, language that takes place. One hand, we are the elect, we're the chosen, we're sanctified, we're, we're priests. But on the other side, we're exiles, we're aliens, and we're strangers. And which is it? Well, it's actually both. You see, you, you are the elect, but you're still in exile. You are the chosen, but you're still strangers. And those who are in God, it shapes who they are in the world. You see, there's a new allegiance. No longer is the allegiance to our ethnicity, to our tradition, but it's to our God who has ransomed us. And, you know, with all the things that we're dealing with in the world today, with the tension, and again, most of the problems that are taking place throughout the world have to do with ethnicity, which when you look at that video that I mentioned before, it's kind of silly because there really aren't any pure races anymore. I mean, most of those who think, yeah, I mean, the, the video they're saying, oh, no, man, I know that I'm from Iceland. I'm Icelandic. That's all who I am. And he had Spanish in him. He had all these. And he's like, whoa, I thought I was, you know, because he looks as white as could be. You would think, yeah, he's Icelandic. But nope, he had Spanish in him. You know, and one of the ladies, she goes, oh, I'm just against the, the government of Turkey. I want nothing to do with that. And she was Turkish and had a cousin who's actually in the room. I'm giving the video away. But you see, there's no pure race. And yet there's so much violence just because of ethnicity, because of the color of our skin, 
But what we really see is now what God is trying to do is bring in this new humanity of Christ. And when we come to Christ, the kingdom of heaven becomes our goal. It becomes our home. It is what we're living towards. What does that look like? Well, it looks like what Jesus talked about. The Beatitudes, you know, those who are peacemakers. It talks about those who are caring and loving and like Christ. It talks about those who are merciful. It talks about this is what the kingdom of heaven looks like. It belongs to these people. The kingdom of heaven becomes our home and he has become our salvation, our hope. We live with the tension that we're in this world, but we're trying to live for another. The idea of alien or exile or stranger or images that he takes up throughout the whole book. In chapter five, he mentions the sister church in Babylon, which was the Roman Empire, which is important to know when you look at the book of Revelation that that's what it's referring to. Pointing back to when Israel was in exile with the Babylonian government. And they had to have been taken captive with the Babylonian nation, rather. And they were taken captive and they were told to be faithful to God even while they were in exile. And Peter is saying, even though you are under this Roman rule, you are to live faithful to the God who has ransomed you. You see, there was something more important that they were supposed to be living for. There are values that they are to have, that they are to take, that might alienate them in their culture and might even alienate us at times in our culture. But he's writing to these various groups, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and yet they're all part of this new humanity. And I think one of the things that we lose sight of throughout the scripture, especially the New Testament, is this idea that God is trying to bring about a people of diversity, but who are committed to the heart of God. So it doesn't matter if they are Greek. It doesn't matter if they are Hebrew. It doesn't matter where they are from, that they are now under this rule of Christ that brings them together. And he's trying to do that. We divide ourselves over our differences Christ unites us in spite of our differences. You see, I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. You can still be my brother, my sister. You might vote for Hillary. You might vote for Trump. You can still be my brother and sister. I may disagree with you. But there's something more important. There's something that should be more important. There is something that is going to last longer than the Democratic or the Republican Party. Because countries rise and fall. But the kingdom of God is being established throughout the centuries, throughout the civilizations. And that is what's going to last That's what we connect ourselves to first, and then we can deal with our differences. They're okay. Chapter 2, verse 9, he says, But you 
are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, in order that you may proclaim the mighty acts of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, you're now this new nation. Royal has the idea of your blood bought, right? We don't know about royal, royalty here. We're, we're not British. We don't have kings and, and those kinds of things. And so royalty looks strange to us that would be common in another country. You know, if someone was from somewhere out in the Middle East or whatever, and some person comes here and they're a princess, oh, it's princess so-and-so. Well, if she's here, she looks like us, you know, just get in your Toyota and drive around like us. There's no carriages or whatever princesses drive around in. I don't know. No, you're, you're just a part of this and it looks foreign to us. And so we look foreign wherever we are, because we are from another place. A priesthood are people who represent God to the world, God to our culture. You see, how can we represent God to our culture in this state that it's in, in the confusion that it's in, in the hurt that it's in? How are we to represent God? It's important that we recognize this. In chapter 2, verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as aliens and exiles to abstain from the desires of the flesh that wage against the war of the soul. Conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that they may malign you as evil, that they, though they malign, though they malign you as evildoers, they may see your honorable deeds and glorify God when he comes at his visitation. What is he saying? He, he's saying that we are to live lives that when people see us, they can't deny that we belong to God. That we live in a way that honors him. You see, some people think that to honor God, what you need to do is flee, just get out of there. You need to go to a monastery somewhere. You need to kind of separate yourself from everything from the systems, from the educations. You can only go to Christian schools. You can only go to Christian restaurants or bookstores, those kinds of things. And others people want to just isolate themselves completely. You build walls. You make your own culture. And you establish. I, I was talking with Corrine today because I'm going to start using the new revised standard version of the Bible, but I haven't gotten mine yet. But just letting you guys know, that's the, because I've been having problems with the NIV and I don't care all that much for the ESV, so I'm going for the, anyway, that's besides the point. I was talking to Corrine, I was like, oh, I want to get this Bible. And I was thinking, well, I want to get it from, you know, like a Barnes and Noble. And she goes, why don't you just go to the Christian bookstore? I said, well, because I'm kind of against Christian bookstores. I know you guys think, what? You're against Christian books? Wouldn't it be better if you needed to get something that you went to the bookstore, don't we want who we are to be involved with the rest of the world? But you see, you don't. You just go to your Christian bookstore and you get your Christian books for your Christians. And it's all about this isolation. And I'm thinking, wouldn't it be better if the books that are meaningful and helpful to us and to others were found in regular bookstores. And that's why Irwin's books are in 
Barnes and Noble and a lot of the books that I want to see take place, you know, in our culture show up in those places because that's what we want to see it affect the world around us. You see, and some people want to just copy the things of the world. How do, we info, how do we become a part of this? How do we become examples? Well, we'll just copy the good things of the world and we'll make them our own. And it's never quite as good, by the way. Usually movies, music, those things, when they have this label Christian, it ends up becoming a little bit less than. Because we're not really great at copying those things. And so what we really needed, Peter is trying to present this as your all over the world. You're in all these different regions, but you all belong to this Christ. We live in the world as participants who are showing our true citizenship with God. You see, we need to do this, and he tells us that we're to do this with gentleness. Gentleness. Do you think gentleness is what we are known for? In the political realm, is gentleness what comes across? That's not what we're seeing. That's not the way that things are coming across. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. Always be ready to make your defense to anyone who demands from you an account for the hope that is in you and do it with gentleness and reverence. We're to do it with gentleness and respect. The strongest theme throughout Peter's writing in this book is that of suffering. Chapter 4, verse 12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that is taking place among you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. It's not going to be unusual that those who are going to be followers of Jesus are going to go through an ordeal. Again, at this time, it was intense persecution. We know that Peter himself gave his life for his faith. There's some beliefs that he was crucified upside down because he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus. We don't know if that's true or not, but we know that he was martyred for his faith under Nero. The strongest thing is that of suffering. Verse 19, he says, Therefore, let those who suffer in accordance with God's will entrust themselves to a faithful creator while continuing to do good. While continuing to do good. Why do we continue to do good even though that we're suffering? Because that's the place we belong to. That we don't repay evil for evil, but we repay good because we believe that that is what's going to triumph. Peter himself was persecuted. He understood the suffering that takes place when you live doing what is good. As evangelical American Christians, if you give us a title, I guess, so often we object to things that are foreign, to the idea of things that are unusual to us, and we don't really like suffering. Some of the biggest evangelical Christian organizations are those who promote that you don't suffer. I watched, it was a YouTube video on some Christian preachers. You shouldn't watch those things. You just get angry. Um, And one of them was just boasting about being a billionaire and how God wants all of us to be billionaires. 
And like, really, that's God's attention? That's what he wants for us is to be billionaires? More than anything else, that's what he wants is us to be billionaires. And it's just kind of frustrating when you see those things. But we don't like the idea of suffering, so that sells. And a lot of people want to buy into that. Because who doesn't want to be a billionaire? I'd like to be a billionaire. That'd be cool. Heck, take a millionaire. Heck, $1,000 would be nice. You know, right? I mean, it's just... But the idea of suffering, I don't want to suffer. Who wants to suffer? God doesn't want you to suffer. They were suffering. And he seems to be implying if you are going to be an example in the culture you live in, there's going to be some tension there. You're going to stand against a lot of people who are pushing for one way and you're trying to establish something else. And so sometimes what's culturally good actually can become idolatry. And we need to be careful that that doesn't become us. You see, what was required was hospitality. That's what was required for church leaders. If you're going to be someone who's an elder in a church, one of the requirements, hospitality was one of them. Not just to those who you like, but to those who are in need. Why do you do this? Why would we want to sign up for this? Why would we want to be a part of anything like this where we have to be exiles, where we have to be foreigners, where we have to like people who are unlikable, where we have to extend ourselves out past our comfort zone? Why would we want to be a part of any of the things like that? What would motivate us to do something like that? You see... We are following the fact that Jesus did this. You see, we weren't the first ones to be aliens or exiles or suffer. We love him because he first loved us. The whole idea of who Jesus is was he extended himself to us that even though we were broken, and damaged, he saw value in us. And then recognized that that value was something like in Peter, a fisherman who was neglected in society, was not one of the people who could follow a rabbi, and now he became the rock that the Lord chooses to build the church on. You see, you and I are those people You and I are the ones who maybe we aren't good enough. Maybe we don't have it together enough. Maybe we don't meet up to the standards, but God sees in us that you are the light of the world, that you are the salt of the earth, that you are a kingdom of priests, that he wants to use us to establish this new kingdom. And so even though in this culture, in this world, we might be regarded as not a value, Jesus saw us of value and came here as a foreigner from heaven, so to speak, to reach out for us, to give us this value. And that's what he's asking us to do to others. And that's difficult. But it was done for us. It's given us to an, he's given us an example. And what does following Jesus cost? It costs commitment. It it costs caring more about your family than you do yourself. It it costs caring about the needs of others, even though they're not really lovely. It, It costs 
a commitment to the cause of Christ more than our comfort. And that's uncomfortable. That's difficult. And that extends us beyond our comfort zone. But what it does is it makes us better human beings. And it gives us the ability to actually make a change in the world that we live in. Because God banked everything on love. Everything. It's what he entrusted everything to. And it was that God so loved the world that he gave his son. You know, he, he ends these verses with grace and peace be yours in abundance. Because we're going to need them in abundance. If we're going to live as exiles, as foreigners, as strangers, have to go through suffering, you're going to need grace and you're going to need peace. If you're going to think about those things, we need an abundance of that. And you see, again, what makes it possible is it doesn't start with us. It starts with him who did this for us. When he says, I'll be the one who is exiled, the one who will suffer, the journey to my death is the journey to your life. That cross is what is going to bring your life. Why? Because the Father wants you to belong to him. And he will share his very spirit with you. God wants to give you of himself. Where Paul would say, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that God would want to dwell in us. Where we talked in the beginning about the Trinity being that of always giving, always extending, where we want to close up. No, I don't want to give of myself to, to that person because they might, you know, harm me or take advantage of me. So I'm going to live sheltered. You have to be wise. You don't just extend yourself without reason. Remember, forgiveness doesn't mean trust. But God is saying, I will give of who I am to you because it's part of who he is as Father, Son, and Spirit. That's why we do this is because he has already done it. He's brought us into this family. He's made us a kingdom of priests through Christ. And so Peter is trying to bring us into an understanding to get through the suffering of this life, you are going to need an abundance of God's grace and peace and for him to be at work within us. And that's going to affect everything that we do. Let's close in prayer for it. God, I pray, Lord, that we would have an understanding of your desire for our lives and for uh, your people, wherever they are and whoever they are. Lord, that you would give us a heart that is like yours. Lord, we have been strangers uh, because you have been a stranger. And we are strangers in this world, Lord, but um, we have a home. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the example you've given us in Christ. Lord, might you help us to live it out. May you ask these things in Jesus' name.
You have been listening to the Genesis Podcast. We invite you to join us at one of our weekly gatherings. You can find more information at www.thegenesisstory.com as well as opportunities to help financially support this podcast. Thank you for listening.